0: All right, well good morning, Gospel Community church. I am excited to be here. Um, thank you guys for inviting me to to fill in for Pastor Kirk. He's taken a, a little break. I hope that Kirk, you are finding yourself recharged and uh, really chomping at the bit to get back up here. I know your folks are missing you. Um, thank you guys for allowing him to have this kind of break i I love my brother Kirk, and it excites me to know uh, that you guys give him a break, to let him relax, to handle some other things going on. So thank you guys for doing that. That's actually a service to me. Kirk, you don't know this, but I call Kirk all the time to ask him questions and to pick his mind on stuff. So I need him very refreshed, you know, at the top of his game so that he's there for me, right? All right. So um, yeah, so we're going to be in the book of Ephesians today. And I I think you guys have been there for a minute or so. And uh, I hope that it's been fun. By fun, I also mean challenging. I hope that it's been challenging. I know that it kicked my butt this past week and and the prior week when I've been looking at it, um, and I hope to kind of do the same thing to you this morning, right? That's actually my plan. As we go through this, I'm going to encourage you a little bit because I think this is what what Paul does. I'm going to encourage you, and then I'm going to call you some names. You you probably get down in the dumps for a minute, but then you're going to be encouraged again. All right, And along the way, we're going to get to go on a little side rabbit trail uh, because there's a little controversy going on in, in the text and in theological cir- circles. And we're going to even get to ask the question, did Jesus go to hell when he died? And so that'll be a fun little aside that we get to. So if you recall, during the first three chapters that you guys have been looking at, you, you guys have seen Paul really in some very intense prayers. You've seen some... Um, complicated and, and direct and intense theology that's been going on. Uh, today, it, we're going to be continuing with some, some definitely deep, intense theology. But more than that, we're going to get to see some very practical, horizontal applications of this theology that you've been learning. And so it, it should be a lot of fun. Let me, let me just sum up for you what I think Paul is getting at through this verses 1 through 16. And I'll tell you, a couple of years ago uh, at Four Corners, I'm a pastor at Four Corners, we went through the book of Ephesians. And when we did, uh, we actually split this passage up. We did verses 1 through 6 and then 7 through 16. And, and it was great. And I thought, you know, when Kirk asked me to preach, oh yeah, I've, you know, I've studied that, done that, good. Dude, it was so cool to go back and look at, at, at this passage as a whole, 1 through 16, to really get the grasp of this whole argument that, that Paul's going to be presenting was Just amazing. I love it. We can come to scripture time and time again and each time be blown away with the truth of the gospel. Simply amazing. Here's a sum of what we're going to be looking at, okay? We as Christians have been called into a relationship with the Trinity. However, we live in spiritual immaturity until we do the hard work of creating unity in the church. That's my sermon for today. I'm going to read it again. Here we go. We as Christians have been called into a relationship with the Trinity. However, we live in spiritual immaturity until we do the hard work of creating unity in the church. So we're going to walk through that, basically. There's three basic parts. So life in the Trinity, spiritual maturity, and building unity. Life in the Trinity. If you recall back to, to chapter 2, one of, the, one of the most famous passages from this Ephesians letter and one of my favorite that I have to go to time and time again just to be encouraged. Uh, Verse 4 said, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Today in this passage, and you probably just heard as as it was read, uh, we're going to see more of that. There's more of this been seated with him. We've been, We've been Places with, we made alive together with Christ. We've actually been made somehow in, into this body with Christ. Verse 15, if you heard it, he said that, that Christ is the head and we are the parts. There's some kind of deep association we have with Christ. If we look at verses like 4, 5, and 6 that we're just about, we're going to be looking at, it says, it says, there is one body that you're saved into, right? One spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Do you you hear that's just Trinitarian language? Okay, it's more than just made alive together with Christ, but when you're in Christ as part of his body, you're actually brought into a relationship with the Trinity. This is deep. This is cool. Jesus has brought you in. You, if you're a Christian... Has brought you in to share life with himself. That's radical. That's amazing. OK? We're going get to get to look at this deeper. This, this, is, this is amazing. How does he share his life with you? Did you notice a word that kept popping up? I'm just gonna, let me just read the first six verse or so. I, I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. To which you have been called. You know, I should I should point out. Do you you hear him say a prisoner of the Lord? Do you remember that he just said something about being a prisoner of the Lord in the past? Last week, you probably looked at at chapter three. That should be a warning for us that things may get a little complicated. Have any of you guys ever got a, a letter from somebody in jail? I have. Guess what? If you get a letter that starts off with, "Hey man, I'm in jail." The rest of the letter is going to be a bit odd, all right. It's going to get complicated. It's going to be intense. And now here Paul is saying that again. So keep that keep that in mind. I urge you, brothers, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, to which you have been called right? With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. There is one body, like I just, just read, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You see this word call coming again and again. You're called somehow into this relationship. What does call mean? Uh, for me growing up, when I heard people in church talking about calling, it was normally referring to some sort of job, um, and maybe even a, even a like a ministry type job. It's normally where I most heard it. Hey, so and so would be brought up on the stage and this guy has been called to go into vocational ministry. Right? Or or I'd hear somebody say, "I think my calling is to be a teacher. I think my calling is to be a missionary. I think my calling is to be a doctor. I think my so on and so forth." Right? That's normally that's what I think of when I hear call. Is that what Paul's talking about right here? No. He's talking about something much greater, much deeper than a job, much deeper than some ordinary worldly title, vocational title. Now, he is talking about some sort of title, but that title, mind you, is Christian. Christian is the calling that we're talking about here. Now, I want you to think about this a little bit. Um, Have you been called... To bear the name of Christ. That's, that's a big deal. Uh, we hear that when they call and call. And I think it's because people so often use it in, in this other way. Have you been called? Do you have the title of, of Christ with you? Are you really associated with that title? Do you realize there is no more prestigious name in all of the universe by which to be referred? The name that all heavens and earth bow down to. Are you associated with that name? Wow. Any, any other title you can think of. Doctor compared to Christ? Well, that's kind of dull, isn't it? Professor, that's high and mighty in the world, but compared to Christ, it's nothing. CEO? That's boring, whatever. Christ. Wow. It's that calling to be a Christian that Paul is now going to urge us to walk worthy of. Christian. Who is this letter written to? Christians, right? He's writing to a church. Today, this, Paul is talking to Christians today. All right. It means he's talking to you. If you bear the name of Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, if you are a Christian, then he's talking to you. Not your neighbor, not the person you wish would be here today, but he's talking to you. If you're here this morning and and you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not a Christian, um, that's okay. I'm super excited that you guys are here. You're going to get to listen in today on some things that Paul has to say to Christians. And I actually pray that by listening in, you may even be persuaded to follow Christ today. Very possible. Very possible. So we have to ask ourselves a question. If Paul's writing to Christians, he's talking about this calling. If you've been called as a Christian, is Paul talking to you? Is he, is he really talking to you? I mean, a lot of us call ourselves Christians, but has God called you a Christian? That's the real question. How, how do you get called? How do you get called to be a Christian? Maybe you're born into it, right? You know, haven't you asked people, so, so you're a Christian. How did you become a Christian? Well, my parents were a Christian, and so it's almost like we get born into it. I mean, maybe we think back to the Old Testament, and we think, well, Israel, you know, like descendants of Abraham, they had to be born into the, into the Israelites, or the priest, they had to be sons of Aaron, they had to be born into Do you have to be born into it? Is this something you get born into we're Americans, right? We were born Americans, so of course, we're Christians. At least we're Southern by the grace of God. Maybe it's because we're in the South that we that we're Christians or or maybe you see that. The United States, maybe you're of the opinion that we're kind of going to hell in a handbasket. So maybe it's foreigners that actually get called to be Christians. And you see the church exploding in, in China and in India and in these, these places that you would think uh, the gospel would never be reached. And here churches are, are just exploding. Maybe it's those people who get called. You know, I ask a lot of people, so you call yourself a Christian. Why do you think you're a Christian? Sometimes maybe the response is, well, I'm a good person. I do this. I go to church. I tithe. I do this. Do this. Do you get called because of what you do? Maybe, maybe maybe it's good folks that get called, right? What kind of folks get called to know an all-powerful God, to be involved in his life? You may be surprised. You may be surprised. This same author, Paul, he says in 1 Corinthians 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers, I'd say this probably comforts some of you, and some of you maybe even find yourself mad because the audacity of God to call those people. The audacity of God to call those people who are low. The audacity of God to call the beggar. The person that's poor. The audacity of God to call, to call the liar, to call the hooker, to call the addict. The audacity of God to call the murderer, the terrorist, the whore, the adulterer. The audacity of God to call those people. Some religious people can't stand that God would call those people. And the sinner... The sinner thinks those things are too good to possibly be true. That's what the gospel does. God would never love me. He knows how bad I am. He knows the thoughts that go through my head that if anybody knew, they'd never put me around their kids. <laughs> I'm such a bad person on the inside. Man, if you only knew. I, I, at work, I trick people out of their money. That's what I do for a living. I've cheated on my wife. I look at porn. I cheat on my wife every day. I'm an alcoholic. I'm so burdened by my sin. By my sin. Guess what? You are exactly who God calls Come to me, all ye who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's who God calls. If you are burdened with sin, then God is calling you to be a Christian. He is inviting you to share life with the Trinity. Is that you? Is that you? That's unbelievable. That's something to rejoice in. Something to rejoice. God calls you. He gives you a new life. He shares his life with you. If you've been called into his body, he doesn't just, he goes further than just calling you and inviting you into a relationship. He gives you gifts. He says right there in verse 7, what does it say? I'll read it to you. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Not only has you graced you with a relationship, but he's graced you with gifts. Each and every one of you and we'll see in just a minute he's equipping you for ministry. He's given you gifts for ministry. Everybody is called everybody that's a Christian, is called, not just into relationship, but called into ministry. Yeah. Oh, I haven't received a call into ministry. <laughs> if you're a Christian, guess what? You're in the ministry. Uh, when I got here this morning, the, the, the church that was meeting here before had to move out and all these guys would, uh, all, all of you guys, help set up everything, get everything situated. Um, I've heard this excuse of calling so often uh, to get out of serving, right? Hey, uh, we need help in the children's ministry. We need help setting up the stage. Well, you know, that's just not my calling, No, you've been called into a relationship. You've been given gifts to serve in the ministry. Serve, get in the game. That's actually what we see Paul doing here. He's urging us to play the game. See, you've been called, you're in this life. And Paul's sitting here over on the sidelines, waving his hands. He's sitting in the dugout. You're out there on the field. You're wearing the jersey. You're a Christian. The game is going on. And Paul is saying, "Hey, hey! Look over that way. Look, the game is going on. Uh, the, the, somebody's up to bat. The pitcher's got the ball. Turn around, face, face that way, face home plate. Get your glove down. Get ready. That's what Paul's doing here. I, I, I urge you. Look, God's given you gifts. You got a glove. You got to come on. Get going. Get going. Christ has given us all gifts." Now, this is something really cool and unique about Christianity. See, we've been called to share one life, but we've each been given gifts. Not, not the same gifts, but, but there's a diversity of gifts. Think about how that's very unique to Christianity. Think about the other major world religions that, that, we, that we see. Do you, do you realize that in most of them, you have to be like the same You can go all around the world and and you can look and say, "Oh, look! There's a practicing uh, Jewish person, because they kind of look and act the same, right? Uh, There's someone who practices Islam. May dress a certain way. They may have the same names. They need to pray in the right language at certain times of the day. They they pray in a certain direction, right? Um, Hari Krishnas, you can tell from a distance, right? There's because they're dressed the same way. Christianity." Although we're called to be unified, we're not called out of our diversity, out of our individuality, out of our culture. You can go anywhere in the world, and Christians are going to look like people there. (laughs) Chinese Christians, American Christians, African Christians. They're unified, yet they are diverse. Christianity does call us to be above our individuality, and above our culture, but doesn't call us out of our culture. That's something that's pretty cool. Do you see how that's actually a reflection of, of, of this Trinity language that's going on? The Trinity, one God, three persons, the body of Christ, Christians, one body, different and unique parts. Really cool how that goes together. You see how we're wrapped up in this life of the Trinity. Paul then, uh, actually, in the next verse, verse 8, he says, uh, therefore, it says, and he's referring to a a psalm, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Uh, Paul is basically making the point that Christ, being victorious in his death and his resurrect, resurrection, ascends to heaven and on his way showers us with gifts that, that we've just been looking at. Now, Paul is actually quoting Psalm 68, 18. He's not exactly quoting it. He changes it around a little bit. He's, he's more of uh, referring to it. This is something that the, the audience would have been familiar with. And, and he's saying, okay, l- like that. In the Psalm, and if, it's, if we stick it up there, you'll see, well, he wasn't exactly quoting. So what's, what's going on there? Paul was actually, or, or David, the guy who, who wrote this psalm, was, was talking about the Ark of the Covenant as representative of God, going up to Mount Zion. And on the way, there's this conquering procession that's going on. And all the captives that have been delivered over to Israel um, were, were there in this procession. And along the way, gifts were showered to the people. And so it is with Jesus, who is God, victorious over all of his enemies, Satan, demons, death, sin, the curse, victoriously marches to heaven. Paul goes further in the next verse to to explain this, and this is where some uh, controversy, I guess, comes, comes in in some theological circles. Paul says, In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also had descended into the lower regions, the earth. And I'm reading from the ESV translation. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now, some of your translations, I even noticed the, uh, the one that you read earlier said um, he descended to the, the lower regions of the earth. All right, so we're going to take just a, a moment to step aside. And talk, talk about this because in, in Christian theological circles, this little thing ha- has brought about some major controversy. Okay? Uh, some translators are, are very adamant about saying, uh, no, this, this doesn't just mean that, that God descended uh, Jesus from heaven in the incarnation. Certainly it, it, it means that, but it, it means much more than just that. Before his ascension. And they get all wrapped up in this. Says, no, it means the lower regions of the earth. It's more than just becoming a human being. But it, it's something lower. Something beyond just humanity. And there's a, there's a spectrum of what translators, what, um, what scholars think that that means. There's a, there's a range of thoughts on it. Okay, The simplest just being... Okay, of course, it, it means that he actually died. He didn't just become a human being, but he died in the grave, dead, buried, under the ground, lower than the earth. He's dead, and it's from that death that he was resurrected, showing that he was victorious and then ascending to heaven. Okay, that's the simplest first, and certainly this is good. Okay, um, uh, there's some other, and I just want to get the, the simplest and then the most complex, which is a bit, you'll see, I think that it's too far. Some would even say, no, 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 this actually means that that Jesus went to hell. Some of you may have grown up reciting the Apostles' Creed, and then there we have that phrase, that Jesus descended into hell. And, And some would say that he descended into hell, and what that means is Jesus continued to be punished in hell after his death. Okay, and, and sometimes scholars will take a reference from a 1 Peter passage and say that um, that says Jesus, when he died, uh, went to prison and preached to prisoners there. And so see, this is talking about, about hell. I think that goes a bit too far, if we mean by hell, uh, the place to be punished for sin. And let me just throw at you a couple of reasons. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, but I, I want, some of you... I know we're chomping at the bit to wrap your mind about this. If you have questions later, then see Kirk, he has all the answers. All right. Look, Jesus didn't go to hell, that place of torment. Here's why. First of all, we can look at the whole of Scripture and see that that, that place where Satan will be punished forever comes comes at the end, actually. So hell was made for Satan. And at the final judgment, you can read Revelation 20. uh, At the final judgment, God will look upon all of us, and he will judge you according to your deeds. Or, if you are in Christ, he will judge you according to Christ's deeds. All those who are found guilty, and remember, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All that who who are not in Christ... Uh, will be sentenced to spend eternity in this lake of fire, the same place that was created for Satan to be punished. Now that comes at the end, so it doesn't really make sense that Jesus would have gone there. OK? That, that's one. Number two, if you remember Jesus on the cross in Luke's gospel, he was crucified alongside two other prisoners. One of the prisoners said, basically was confessing his faith in Christ. And what did he say? Do you remember? Exactly. Um, what does the prisoner ask him? He says, I, don't, I want to quote it to you. Yes, yes, yes. He says, Jesus, remember me when, I come, uh, when you come into your kingdom. Jesus responds, today I will see you in paradise. More than that, think about John's gospel. What does Jesus cry out with his last breath on the cross. It is finished. To die, It is finished. That's because all of God's wrath. All of God's judgment. Was poured out on Jesus. At the cross. It was finished. Amen. It's done. It's finished. It's over. He absorbed the entire wrath of God. The moment that God turned his face away. Done. Sin is paid for. That's it. No more. Okay? Now there's some other views about what may have happened at Christ's death. We're not going to go into that now because Paul is not talking about that. Paul has made his point very clear that the God-man, deity, Christ, became incarnate, died, paid for our sins, resurrected victoriously, ascending to heaven, and showering Christians with gifts. He goes on to say, And he gave the apostles, the prophets. If you remember back from chapter 2, he calls the prophets and the apostles the foundation on which his house is being built. He gave the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Again, we see this idea of all the saints are to be working in ministry. For building up the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith. All of us have been given gifts, right? And we're being given these gifts to work towards ministry, to build this body. Notice that word, until, until what? Until we reach complete unity and complete knowledge of the Son of God. And if we keep reading, basically what Paul is saying, until we reach maturity. If you just skim through those next few verses, what, what is Paul going to be saying? He said, he's, he's describing that, that unity and complete knowledge of, of God. And he says, to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, rather that we grow up, in verse 15. To maturity. That's our goal. But remember that word until? This is kind of remarkable if you stop for a minute on that word. Until. Until who? Until we reach maturity. Who's he talking to? Christians, the church, and the we means he's including himself. Do you understand the implication there? Paul is saying, we're not mature yet. He's saying that he's not mature yet. If you're not mature, what does that make you? Immature. I'm immature is what Paul is saying. Wait a minute. If Paul is immature, the apostle Paul, what does that make us? Hmm. Paul is urging us to this maturity, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Consider this a bit more. Do you remember, what's the most famous verse in all the Bible? What do you think? John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Why is Jesus ever even saying this? He's saying it because he preached a little sermon and made a comment, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus comes to him and says, hey, what's up with being born again? This idea of being born again we see this throughout scripture. There, there, there's something about being born again. Do you realize when you become a Christian, just like when you're born, you're not made into a spiritual adult right away. You're made into a spiritual baby because you've been born again. We start as babies. That's cool. We need babies, right? We don't keep going if there's no babies. Babies are good. It's excellent. You know, you guys have lots of babies, right? Right? Okay, there's, there's babies in here. Uh, I saw a baby sitting on somebody's lap a minute ago. That's, that's cool. And it was making noise and that kind of thing. That's great. That's fine. The, the mom felt like she needed to go out. You, you don't got to do that, by the way. It's okay, because babies are awesome. Yeah. Babies are awesome. Now, if you, a 30-year-old man, brought your mother in so that you could sit on her lap <laughs> at church... All right, that gets a bit disturbing. We need spiritual adults. It's great to be a baby, but you got to grow up or it becomes weird. All right? Paul actually gives us a few descriptions of what this spiritual immaturity looks like. He's given us one. He's going to be giving us some others, and so I want to just walk through this a little bit because I want to consider what exactly is spiritual immaturity, and and I think this relationship to physical babies is going to help us. I have a one-year-old son. All right, he was born like a couple of weeks before Kirk and Chelsea's baby, and so I'm consumed with baby right now. Everything is baby, right? I know a lot of you guys are in the same boat. Uh, it was really remarkable to walk, to walk through this passage and relate myself to my kid who's a baby. And so I think it'll be the same for you. Uh, do you remember back in verse 2, we, we were urged to walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love? That's because that's what spiritually mature people do, all right? Mature Christians do this. Spiritually immature Christians don't do that. Spiritually immature Christians are selfish. Just like our physical babies are selfish. Right? Physical babies want what they want, when they want it, and they want it now. Right? When they want something, when they want a drink, when they want a snack, when they want mommy, when they want daddy, you'll know about it. Because there's crying and flailing and all kind of stuff that goes on to let you know. That's fine. They're a baby. We have to teach them otherwise. We have to teach them that the world doesn't revolve around them. We have to teach them that this, this world is not Burger King. You can't have it your way right away. Right? Spiritual Christians, spiritual immature Christians, spiritual babies... Are similar. How do you know if you're a spiritual baby? Well, if you're constantly getting your feelings hurt because things don't go your way, if you're always conscious of how other people are, are looking at you or treating you, if you're always thinking about yourself, if you're always getting upset with other people because they're not doing things how you would do it, if you're impatient, if you have a hard time admitting when you're wrong, if you're concerned about your image more than God's image, then you're a spiritual baby. Then you're a spiritual baby. Spiritual babies are selfish. Spiritual babies, verse 14, that, we, that we're getting to, are tossed back and forth by the waves. They're not very steady. Uh, we took our first trip to the beach two weeks ago, w- with, our, with our baby. This was Rogan's first time at the beach. Tossed back and forth by the waves. And look, we didn't know what my kid, Rogan, would do with the ocean. Well, he was like a bullet running for it. He, we set his feet down the beach, and he was just like, Whoa! Uh, right out into the water. And we're chasing him like, this is kind of neat, what's going to happen? And yet, i got to be there. Like he went into what's about calf deep ankle for me, you know, up to his waist. And the waves come and they just knock him down. And we're like scrambling to get him and we see his face under the water like like this circling around and, and he gets up and he's just laughing. And we're like oh, what? He was just laughing. It was insane. It was the funnest thing for him to stand up and like jump onto a wave, but the waves were so strong for him it just like bounced him back. I had a literal picture of being tossed back and forth by the waves. It was crazy. But look, not just physically by by, by the waves, but babies aren't 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 steady in any way. Not just physically. Think about when the, their attention, right? Anything that makes the most lights and colors and noises that's where their attention goes. So it's over here, you know, and then something flickers and it's over there. It's all in the cabinets and pulling this. Oh, look, there's more over there. And so stuff is strewn out all over the place. Look, I try to have deep conversations with my 1-year-old. And no matter how hard I try, it only lasts for about 5 seconds. You know, he's in he's in for that 5 seconds. He's got it going on and then he's somewhere else, right? Spiritual babies are the same way. They're not steady. Okay? If you find yourself coming to a church gathering like this, during the service, you know, you get convicted. You think, oh, man, there's really some areas I need to correct. And then you walk out, and your attention goes somewhere else. You don't follow through. You're not steady. That means you're a spiritual baby. That means you're a spiritual baby. If you're not simply able to stay on track... To commit to be faithful, then you're a spiritual baby. Especially when those waves come crashing. If you're always asking God to give you some new revelation, to show off some great miracles so that you'll obey, so that you'll be faithful. You're a spiritual baby. Spiritually mature people head in the same direction, are faithful no matter what, even when the waves come crashing upon them. Continue on in verse 14. Carried about by every wind of teaching. See, babies aren't very discerning. Uh, Think about what babies put in their mouth. They put food in their mouth. Sure. Uh, They put toys in their mouth. They put bugs in their mouth. They put poop in their mouth. <laughs> they put poison in their mouth. Whatever reaches their hands, goes in their mouth, right? They, just, they consume it all. They're not discerning. They don't care, whatever. Just put it in. We, we have to teach our babies not to eat poison. We, no, no, don't eat that poison, right? We put locks on the cabinet doors, on those cabinet doors, so they can't get in there and eat the poison. They can't tell good food from bad food to poisonous food. Spiritual babies are not discerning. Spiritual babies can't really tell good teaching from bad teaching to poisonous teaching. We're not discerning. Knowing your Bibles, unless you've done some time studying, unless you have some theology under your belt, then you're a spiritual baby. Okay. Some of us are probably realizing that, well, maybe we're a little bit like a baby. Well, guess what? If I spin all these into the, into the positive, well, here's what happens. It sounds something like this. You're spiritually mature if, one, you're not self-centered. That means you're constantly thinking of others. Uh, you don't really worry too much about what other people think about you. Uh, you don't get your feelings hurt very easily. Number two, if you're steady, if you know how to handle suffering, if you're obedient, even when things aren't going well, even when everything's crumbling around you, you're steady. You're astute in the Scripture. You're always wise and discerning, and you're accurate in your theology. If you got all those three things down, then, yeah, you're spiritually mature. Oh, well, guess what? Paul says even he's not there yet. Even he's not there So, if this is all true, if this is all true, that God makes us a new creation, spiritual babies, if you will, yet we're supposed to strive and walk towards maturity, yet all of us, the church, is not there yet, then that means we're going to have to keep two things in mind and hold intention. The first one is this. Why in the world do you get surprised? when you see immaturity in the church? Why are you shocked when your brothers and sisters in Christ act immature? There's no surprise. There shouldn't be, right? They're they're immature. We haven't reached maturity yet. Of course, I'm going to get stabbed in the back. Of course, somebody's going to tell me something they don't follow through with. Of course, uh, somebody's going to sin. We should expect that out of our brothers and sisters. If you're looking for a perfect church, then Gospel Community Church is not it. (laughs) It's not it. You're a bunch of sinners. You're a bunch of spiritual babies. On the other hand, and this is where the tension comes in, although you shouldn't be surprised when you see spiritual immaturity in other people, Don't you dare put up with spiritual immaturity in yourself. Do you realize what you've been called to? Do you realize that Jesus died on a cross for you? Man, when we realize that, we don't put up with spiritual immaturity in ourself. We don't make excuses for our sin or our lack of commitment. We strive to grow up. We strive to grow up. You're a son or daughter of the Most High God. He's brought you into fellowship with the Trinity. He's called you a Christian. Don't be surprised at immaturity in others, and don't you dare put up with it in yourself. That's the tension that we have to, we have to hold in each hand. So maybe, you, maybe this takes you asking yourself periodically, every couple of months maybe, all right, so am I a more humble self-controlled, happy person than I was at this time last year. Maybe it takes you asking those kind of questions. Maybe it takes you going to someone else and saying, hey, am I approaching maturity? You see, you can't really do it on your own. You won't do it on your own. Um, You can't even recognize all your sin on your own. If we look, just look at verse 13 there. If you remember, we just saw that gifts are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of God. There's something about unity. Deep, unified Christian community is necessary. It's necessary. Remember verse 14 that we just saw. Basically, don't be a baby. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him as the head and to Christ, from which the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When each part is working properly, That's when we become unified. That means really, you can't just drop in on a church gathering and expect to grow. That means you have to be involved. That means you can't just sit at home and open your Bible and listen to sermons on a podcast and think that you're going to grow in your Christian maturity. Paul is telling us it takes other people. How do we strive for Christian unity? Paul said it right there in verse 15. Here's the practice for your church. Rather, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is necessary. That's what we do. We want another each other. You've probably heard that Christian term before. Right? We speak the truth in love to one another. This is the practice. It's out of this balance that comes unity. And when this balance is not there, it's destructive to unity. What do I mean? Let, let's think about this for a minute. Love without truth is destructive. Truth without love is destructive. We've got to speak the truth and love together. Uh, think about this. Uh, you need an outside vantage point to be able to confront you sometimes. Uh, you don't recognize the sin in yourself all the time. Or if so, you just suppress it. You suppress that truth and unrighteousness, right? You need somebody else. Uh, think about it this way. I, I'm hearing my voice right now through these speakers, okay? That's not what I sound like. Not to me anyway, right? To, you should hear me sing. Well, if these weren't on and you could get inside my head, you should hear me sing. Man, I can sound just like the radio. You would be impressed. But if I started singing right now, you guys would be like this. Right, I need, I need an outside vantage point to be able to see, see the real me. In a similar manner, to see the real spiritual me, in a lot of areas, I need an outside vantage point. I need someone calling me out, letting me know, hey, you need some correction. Here's where you're being a baby. Let me come alongside you. Now, that, that requires someone telling the truth to me. Right? But if someone just tells the truth without love, that's not really going to work. You've probably had this experience. When someone comes to you and they're just cold and unloving and direct and tell you how much of a sinner you are, don't talk to me. I don't even know you. Right? Every time I've seen you, this is all you ever do is just criticize. You're not going to listen to that person. Nobody's going to listen to you if, you're, if you don't love them. They're not going to listen. Truth without love is destructive. Both must be present. Unfortunately, we have a hard time keeping this balance. All right? And I'm going to tell you why. Um, you know why you're not so good at one or the other. You may be good at telling the truth but not being so loving. You may be really good at loving but never getting around to telling anybody the truth. It's because you're selfish. Now, it sounds like I just gave you truth without love, didn't it? (laughs) It's because you're selfish. Let me explain that so I don't sound so cold, so I sound a bit more loving. Why is it that those of you who tend to be more loving fail to actually tell the truth? Why is it? Because you don't really want the other person to be mad at you, right? No, you don't want to hurt them. You know that even the best response, they're going to be crushed, they're going to feel guilty, and it's going to be all your fault. The reason you don't tell people the truth is because you care more about how you feel. You're selfish. So what about those of you who tell the truth really well, but you don't do it so lovingly? What's generally your motivation for telling somebody the truth? Uh, maybe it's because you like winning arguments. Maybe it's because you like being right. Maybe cause it's like, because you like to show how much education and theological knowledge you have. Maybe you like to show that you've done this before and you know how it's supposed to be done, so this is how you should do it. It's because you want to show off yourself. It's because you're selfish. Because of our self-centeredness, no one is capable of getting this balance right. Yet, we can't grow without getting this balance right. This is, this is the point. Do you realize there's a dilemma here? Guess what? There's a solution. There's good news. And that news is the gospel. I want you to think about this. Jesus... Dying on the cross, was it not the perfect expression of both truth and love? Jesus on the cross was the most direct, truthful, and insulting thing anyone could ever say to you. You are a sinner, you are rebellious, you have gone against the God of the universe. You're a sicko. You're an adulterer. You're a liar. You're a cheater. You're, you steal. You are jacked up. That's what Jesus on the cross is telling you. And you're so jacked up that nothing less than the God of the universe dying on a cross could take care of your jacked upness. That's a new word. I like it. And Jesus on the cross, at the same time, was the most loving thing anyone could ever say to you. I love you so much, Jesus calling from the cross. I love you so much. You are a person of such worth and such value, made in the image of God, that I would gladly lay down my life for you, my child. My brother, my sister, I invite you into my family. The gospel gets this balance exactly right. And it's not until you see the magnitude of the truth. It's not until you see that you are on a direct path to hell that you will ever understand how loving God actually is by saving your sorry butt. It's not until we actually believe and take in this gospel that we will ever be humbled enough to ever speak the truth to someone in an abrasive, cold way. And it's not until we take in this gospel that we will ever be brave enough to actually go to somebody and tell them the truth. Isn't it remarkable? By the very same gospel, the very same grace by which you were brought into this relationship, it's that same gospel by which you are able to grow into maturity, into unity as the body of Christ. We as Christians have been called into a relationship with the Trinity. However, we live in spiritual immaturity until we do the hard work of creating unity in the church. Hmm. Guys, you have to make that happen here at Gospel Community Church. It's up to you. It's not up to the person sitting next to you. It is up to you. I actually can't wait to see what God has in store for you guys as you pursue Him in unity. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you, first of all, just for this opportunity that we get to gather today as a unified church. God, we've been scattered throughout this week, and we're going to scatter again in just a little bit to be missionaries in this very community in which you've placed us in. But today, God, we get to gather. We get to see with our eyes the unity that's there all the time. God, I pray that you would empower us, empower this church. Allow them to believe the gospel enough that they would actually speak the truth in love to one another. Help them to rejoice in their calling that you have made them a part of your life. And you've invited us to take part in your ministry, alongside you, as your body, as you are the head, to be your parts, to be your tangible expression right here, right now, in Fayetteville. Thank you for that opportunity. God, I I pray that you would make us bold, that you would make us loving. We need your help to do that. We will not do it on our own. Thank you for the freedom we have even to get together and open your word today. God, I'm, I know that my words are not the most eloquent, but God, your Holy Spirit is the most eloquent being in the universe. And I trust that you will do with the words spoken here today just as you will. Now I really can't wait to see what you're going to do through this church right here in Fayetteville. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. So guys, this is a part of of our service that we get to respond.